Promises, promises, promises. Promises, promises, promises. Promises, promises, promises. What does that mean to you? What am I, uh, what meaning am I conveying to you with that? Promises, promises, promises. It's only one word repeated three times. You know what the word promise means. So what did I just say? Um, I think there's something, when people classify English as not a tone language, when people um, split that hair, I think, I think I may disagree now. I'm, there is, I'm sure a different, deeper and fuller explanation, but the, you know what I mean by a tone language? So like Mandarin is a tone language. You can, the classic example is like, um, ma, ma, there are like various, and there were like, what, five or six different ways to say ma in different types of inflections, um, di you know, different pitch levels, and they have different meanings. Um, and so it, in English, we don't have quite that kind of, <laughs> that level of overloading, that level of, uh, of course, we have lots and lots of um, words that share the same word. Homophones, homonyms, but promises, promises, promises. That's an idiomatic tone expression, a tone pattern, right? Like, what's another example? I keep noticing these things and then not making a list of them. <laughs> well, I keep having lists of things that I'm noticing. Oh, brother. Promises, promises, promises. But it means, yeah, uh, it means like a, it's the same as promises, schmamises. Another, another nice idiomatic kind of fill in the blank expression in the English language. Um, but yeah, those three pitches, promises, 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 and they have to be spaced out. It can't be like promises, 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 <laughs> or like, it can't be like promises, 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 get off the premises, premises, premises. Um, yeah, the promises. I'm Steve McLaughlin. This is the Steve McLaughlin Radio Hour. I'm coming to you from the other end of a long soda straw. And uh, yeah, I got my instant coffee. I'm all I'm all set for this morning. I came up with a really nice. Okay, I had a problem. I had two problems. <laughs> I had among my other problems, I had these two. Had this problem where uh, we're running out of milk. And I couldn't quite get my coffee right. Be, look, look, I'm not a huge, like, I'm drinking instant coffee right now. Uh, so I'm not a huge picky person in this respect. But it was bothering my wife. It, we drink iced coffee in the morning. <laughs> this is my, right now I'm drinking my, my first cup of coffee. And I'll drink another cup of iced coffee with her later. But we have a big thing of coffee creamer, which we got. We got in case the you know in case we ran out of milk and then um so that coffee we got this about two weeks ago uh or a week ago and it turned out not to it was not a very good coffee creamer it had um you know we tried it for a few days and i 
put it in my coffee and what it was lacking is the sweetness. Um, people don't think of milk as being sweet usually, but yeah, the lactose in there is a, it's a natural sugar. It, it's sweet. That's part of what you're getting when you put, if you just, if you do uh, just milk with no sugar in your coffee, you're still sweetening your coffee. Okay. <laughs> just to establish that. But, uh, this creamer was just, uh, fat. Basically there was no sweetness in it. So it was just like, I mean, it was made to be added to coffee with sugar. So it was just, uh, what is it? Yeah, some kind of, I mean, it's solids. I can't remember what it is. <laughs> something solids. It's like palm oil solids or something like that. Um, but it, this powdered creamer is just fat. Uh, we also bought milk. We got an order of what we thought was going to be whole milk, and they subbed in skim milk, little bottles of skim milk. Um, and so we have these, this milk now, which is not that great for feeding to the baby, and we don't drink skim milk normally. So we had this problem. We have these two incorrect creamers with basically two things that we don't want to add to our coffee because they're not quite right. Obviously the thing missing in the skim milk is the fat, but it occurred to me yesterday, I was probably standing there doing dishes and zoning out. Occurred to me, we got the two pieces, baby. We got the sweetness in the skim milk and we got the fat in the creamer and we can just mix them right together, straight into our coffee. And we and we'll be set, and then we'll be le- just a little bit less reliant on that um, on that whole milk from Seven Eleven. No, I'm not going to Seven Eleven anymore. But the whole milk, whatever our limited whole milk supply is. And I have I'm pleased to report that was a long way of saying this. Oh my God! But it worked. <laughs> I, at least with my, I've been drinking instant coffee for a few months now. Actually, you know, preceding the current crisis, and I recommend it. I recommend it if you're the only person drinking hot, hot coffee in your house. Um, but I've been a coffee contrarian for a long time. And, uh, and I think that that's the, I have no sympathy for people who say they, they hate bad coffee, frankly. And I may be slightly including my wife in this, but, uh, then again, you know what? I have total sympathy for people who hate bad coffee. I've had a tra- personal transformation. On th- wait, wait a minute. Where, what are my beliefs? I can't. This is the problem with not planning your show. Because I sometimes I get on here and I realize I say I say the opposite of what I mean. But then, look, I came up drinking diner coffee. I, I, I'm a New Jersey native, and I, I, I uh, spent a lot of time. I mean, before when we were high school, when we were kids driving around killing time or whatever you know there's no there was nowhere to go except for diners and so we became big diner fiends and so along with that came just a whole array of cultural um touchstone i don't know um affectations you know so basically what i started drinking a lot more coffee i mean look i started drinking coffee out of necessity because i was overworked in high school probably around the middle of high school, but I, why am I talking so much about high school on this show? <laughs> so I came to really appreciate the bad diner coffee. Bad By bad, I mean just you know, thin um, and often, you know, sitting out for a long period. Hopefully not sitting out for a long period. That, that, that actually I can't, these days that I, I can't really take the old coffee the 7-Eleven coffee. 
So that's just my one caveat, I guess. That's everybody has their limits. So that'll be my limit. But I still do like the the thinner diner coffee. You know, it's a kind of more Midwestern coffee. It's a thriftier coffee. Um, do you know about the the Midwestern coffee? This, this is like a real like Minnesota Swedish American type thing. Um, they'll make coffee by putting so they'll, they'll they'll fill the coffee filter with coffee and then they'll break an egg on top of the coffee. Can you imagine what that would do to it? Just think about how that would change the coffee you end up getting. Run that little simulation in your mind. Um, it, it clarifies it. I mean, it, it makes, I mean, I guess the idea is maybe to get some protein. Actually, it never occurred to me. Like, well, anyway, the only thing I know that it <laughs> makes different, the, the outcome is a, is a relatively thin coffee. And um, it's clearer than regular coffee because the egg, the egg uh, clarifies it. In the same way, you can you can do that for a, for a sauce or whatever. I don't remember that exact technique. I've never done that before. Oh no, you can use that. We can, what is it? You can use an egg to pull. Um, is it to pull fat out of a soup? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not yeah. But I loved that, um, that, that crummy diner coffee. And I have left open that, that part of me that is open to a crummy coffee, you know, context dependent. If I'm sitting in a, yeah, if I'm sitting in a place getting an oil change and they have a little coffee maker, I'm going to drink that coffee and I'm going to really appreciate it. Uh, never going to, never going to reject, never going to reject a coffee. But I have had the best coffee, and that is really good too. And in particular, when you get used to when you have a good source, you know, I I had a really good coffee shop down the street from me for about a year in Philly. It was uh, I was living in a gentrifying neighborhood, so there were actually there were two different coffee shops that opened up, you know, within two a couple blocks of me while I was there. Um, we got we didn't realize it was going to be. This was the very end of our time there neighborhood changed a little bit over the three years the way things do in Philly and we had that good coffee and it just um yeah it gets you get complacent you get used to that good coffee and you get I think you get I think it's a weakness if you get to a point where you have to reject uh subpar coffee I do. I think it's a weakness. I think it's a weakness to be so picky with your food. You know, there's this culture of, yeah, there's this food culture, which is, think about the people who are most, there are many exceptions. Okay. There's a wide range, but a lot of the people who are most excited about food are, I, I think have the wrong attitude about it, which is that they're just looking for the best. They're looking for food to be some other competitive arena, like an Instagram, someplace for them to show off their prowess and smartness. Um, and that's such bullshit. I mean, also I've engaged in, you know, <laughs> I've lived many lives. <laughs> that can be my motto. 
that was a, I misspoke there, but I like it anyway. I've lived many lives. Um, someday I'll tell you about the time I went inside the White House. But I think it's a weakness to not like a bad coffee. Because, I mean, well, or, or, or a food, you know? I think it's a weakness to have such a strong rejection of certain, well, of a poorly prepared food, you know, saying this cheesesteak is garbage and throwing it in the trash. Nobody really does that. And also, every cheesesteak is garbage. So that's a bad example. But, yeah, I mean, there are people out there who send things back at restaurants. There are people. <laughs> um, you know, this brings to mind something else. I've been reading through my Facebook and my Twitter feeds, and I saw a post yesterday. And so, I, look, I've been seeing a lot of. There's a lot of people out of work. There's a lot of. There's a lot of people figuring out what to do next. And I saw a post from someone who was like, "I hope none of you have lost your jobs." Blah blah blah. And I realized, oh, this person doesn't have, this person doesn't know anybody who works in a restaurant or works, you know, doesn't know anybody who's a musician, um, a teacher. Like, you can become so insulated. I think the way people are with their coffee, they are with their people. I think, and we're all guilty of this just to, in one way or another, but I think, you know, you, you start to think of yourself as a real fancy lad, you know, and you go out there and you're like, I will take only the finest hops and barley in my, in my craft beer. Oh, I would never stoop to a, to a macro, an MGD macro, you know, whatever. What do they call BMC, Budweiser, Miller, Coors, the macro, the macro brew, you know. I don't have anybody, I don't have sympathy for someone who can't drink a Budweiser either. I don't drink alcohol but um, anymore, but, but that would fall into the same category. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's a weakness. Um, and yeah, so right, getting back to that, uh, I realize some people don't know you can become so insulated. I think uh, you can go to a, I mean, you can do well in high school. Look, look, well, let me establish this. I think, I think basically, look, people under the age of like 20, maybe people under the age of 25, I was, I remember what it felt like to be those ages. And I felt so with it, you know, I felt so um, plugged in and connected and kind of wise, uh, but I was such a fool. And my whole world was so limited and not holding anything against myself. It's just part of the process. You know, I was just a little larva taking, taking this stuff in and there's a process. But I think you can get to a point where you are just like, I am such a fancy lad and you pin your identity upon, upon that, upon proving how fancy and knowledgeable you are. And you make decisions about your about your life. You make decisions about the coffee you buy, sure. But then you make decisions about the people you want to talk to. Whether you uh, whether you say hi to the 
what, the person cleaning the floor in your office building? I don't know. I don't work in an office building. Um, but you start, I think, I think people get, maybe get too into that exclusive thing where it's, I mean, yes, the world is big and complicated and, and we have, we have immense abilities as humans to just fend things off, to keep in different ways, to keep danger away physically, um, to keep negative ideas away, negative threats to our way of thinking, just negative vibes in general. I mean, a human being can just, can just, you know, if a computer gets overloaded, um, you know, can't reach some terminal point, maybe it will force quit. <laughs> um, this is not a very good analogy. But there's a, like, if it becomes too much, a human can just, like, stop thinking about something under the right circumstances. Or we have that option. You know, you can, mm, gosh, I don't know. You can so compartmentalize. Well, let me put it this way. You know, why am I not worried about the, well, pick one random person off the face of the earth. Um, you know, pick one random person off the face of the earth. It's probably not going to be an American. Why, why am I not worried about that person's well-being specifically? Like, why am I not making sure that, like, <laughs> um, now maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm losing my point. But yeah, we all, we see our, we see our world through this little, this little slice. We, we are able to fend off so much information and so many physical dangers just so that we can clear a little space and think clearly get something done and keep ourselves alive you know this is part of what makes us human and so we fend off things that are not like us or of us or worthy of us you know um i <laughs> a really good one i think is eating insects i think this is just like this is where you can see the edge of human rationality. This is where you can see human rationality becoming, how am I going to phrase this? You can see somebody realize that they're being irrational, acknowledge that they're being irrational, and then still make the irrational choice with regard to eating insects. You see what I'm saying? Um, this was, I got this idea of, I mean, I, I, I remember very clearly a, a, a class I took in college called uh, Sociology of Food, um, which I took to meet a requirement, actually. But one of the experiments that had been run by the professor, whose name I now forget, uh, was that he took, uh, he was studying people's responses to, to insects, and he asked, so this, this wasn't even an insect uh, eating experiment. Uh, basically, he had two little cups of juice. And so he would ask someone, uh, you know, take a cup, take a sip from the first cup of juice. And then he would take, uh, I guess, to make sure they would drink the juice, uh, something like this. And then he would take a little, uh, so he would take a beetle, a dead insect, a dead beetle, which he had run through an autoclave uh, as if it were a surgical instrument. He had completely disinfected this beetle. So it wasn't really a beetle. It was really more like the husk. 
It was the outer husk of a beetle, which was completely, completely and utterly stripped of all bacteria, viruses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, any kind of you know, there was no life. It was just a husk. And then he would he would uh, they would dip they would dip this into the juice and remove it from the juice, and then ask if the person was willing to drink the juice. And the person knows you know they have full information. They know that this this is completely safe. But people would deny. People would turn it down. People would not want to drink the juice uh, because it had been touched by this, because it had been touched by a bug. Even though they know, even though they knew it was irrational. And that sounds like a weird experiment. And it's you know, look, it's the kind of experiment where, in a way, it was set up to get a particular result. But it's reflected in the way people, <laughs> the way people think about bugs, in the context of eating. I mean, I've. I, I've brought this idea up on, on social media a few times. I mean, I'll just say, I don't know what it is. Uh, but you get such a strong negative reaction from people. Um, not a, not an, even an intellectual reaction, just a, like a visceral, oh my God, I will never eat bugs. This is the, this is the thing that I can't get. People will even go so far. If, if you push people on this, and now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm calling on a conversation I had with um, my, my friend, Mr. Strawman, a few weeks ago. Um, if you push people on this, they'll say, even if I were starving, I wouldn't eat bugs. Or they'll, or they'll practically say that. You, you can say, okay, so if I, what if I dehydrate the bug and I, I, and I turn it into a powder? And of course, I'm, I'm dehydrating it at a very high temperature. And so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ensuring that there's nothing living in there. Um, there's a procedure, and you can explain it and walk people through it. And then you have this bug meal, and the question is, like, would you eat a, I don't know, a loaf of, I'm imagining like a banana bread with 10%, you know, with a small fraction of bug meal in there. And I think, I think my sense is that many, many people would reject that out of hand, which is, which I think of as a weakness. Um, be, because, because <laughs> I want to stay alive, <laughs> you know, I really, I really would like to try to keep, I'm willing, I'm, uh, I guess I'm willing to roll with the punches here, uh, and might as well just anticipate a future with bugs. Might as well anticipate a future, well, no, here's my feeling even more so, I might as well push things toward a future with bugs because because the carbon footprint is so much lower and because bugs let you uh let you turn food scraps into food with a really si simple quick process it lets you skip the con uh, compost step and it produces compost along the way in the form of <laughs> uh, in the form of uh i've been reading a lot about black soldier flies and when you raise black soldier flies, you get frass, which is uh, the name for their poop. And that makes a great fertilizer. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll think I'll probably return to this topic in the future and talk to you all about black soldier flies. But it seems like an incredible creature. They're 30% protein, 30% fat. And it could be the solution to... <laughs> it could be uh, eight, a tool in the toolbox uh, uh, for the coming years. 
And so I'm kind of, I'm open to it. You can, you can press these soldier flies and get oil. You can get something like an olive oil. Um, they apparently have a, a pleasant nutty taste. So that's my endorsement of bugs and bad coffee. <laughs> mm. uh, I'll tell you something a little embarrassing. My, my high school band was called the Bernoulli's. We had, um, we put out one EP. This is something I'm a little proud of actually in, in my bag of, you know, up there with like having gone to the white house that one time, which I'll tell you about later. Uh, actually maybe I'm less now in retrospect, I'm less proud of the white house thing. <laughs> uh, this was in the Obama years, but anyway, the, um, uh, I put out, we, we put out one EP or no, no, well, whatever. It was a, a mini album, maybe, or it was a long EP. I don't know. And it was called French Toast and Cigarettes. That was the name I came up with to reflect our interest in diner culture. Yeah, French Toast and Cigarettes. It was a lyric from a song. Coffee stains, French Toast and Cigarettes. And so on and so on. Um, I go back and forth on, my, on our musical legacy. I, I certainly was not a good singer at that time. I, I was doing, like I sang one song on the EP and did some backup stuff. Uh, my old friend Lorian was the singer. Um, but yes, that was, I'm just sharing something embarrassing. I, I <laughs> simply because I said bugs and bad coffee. That could be maybe my, my next EP. <laughs> BSF flower and bad coffee. Um, or no coffee. I think coffee is going to be the first thing to go. One of the first really, <laughs> I mean, it's an environmentally sensitive crop and it's not essential. It's not essential to staying alive much as uh, certain people probably would say that it, you know, people would be extremely upset. I think here's the thing I'm pointing to is there's a lack of imagination maybe among people or a, a lack of patience for hippie shit to put it frankly um like i had a little conversation with someone on facebook the other day saying what if in three months there are no more diapers and i can't get diapers and she was kind of freaking out and there's a whole and yeah and there's been a run on diapers along with toilet paper in the stores so I made a comment about like, well, maybe cloth diapers could be an option. And she had an extremely negative reaction. Like that, no, that will never happen. Um, and I told my, my wife this story about the Facebook interaction and she kind of felt the same way that it was basically, I guess, maybe I, I guess I was being too, I guess I was being glib or whatever. It's, it's a big deal to switch over to cloth diapers, but I don't know. I'm, I changed diapers. I would try, I bought cloth diapers <laughs> with with some intentions that we would try them. And then, and then we got, I got a little more familiar with the, the process and, you know, abandoned that, that kind of, that kind of plan in that case. So, but at least I'm thinking I'm, I'm open to it. I'm open to it. And I feel guilty about all those diapers we've, we've thrown in the train into landfills. Um, but there is a, but there's a lack of imagination. I think, I think it's hard. It's just, like, it's just so hard to imagine not having coffee. I think <laughs> this is what I'm saying about 
fending off. I think that there's a tendency to, if I tell you, like, look, in two years, we may not be able to get coffee at affordable prices because, I mean, these crops are dying. Uh, it's grown at high altitude. You can move it up. You can move it up the mountain once or twice, but you, there's limits to this. I, th I think most people are going to cover their ears. And I'm talking about, like, you know, left, right, and center, basically, in American politics. I think they would say, no. I, th I think they would say, no, they're going to figure it out. I think the promise of, you know, I think the promise of just-in-time business solutions has just, like, seeped into our brains. I think this idea that we can, that you can take someone's promise, you know, that you can take someone's word for it. Um, you know, some XYZ multinational corporation promises you something, promises you some product at a, at a certain price range that you're familiar with and a certain quality level and a certain kind of ubiquitousness, you know, the idea of not having a Starbucks is just so foreign to most people. I mean, and Starbucks is currently capitalizing on that by leaving their stores open uh, in the middle of a pandemic, or at least they were. I, I think they may have shut down in, in some places. I'm, I'm sure that they've shut down. <laughs> um, I'm not, but I, last I read that they were still staying open. But yes, it's so str this, the, I, this is how strongly people feel that something like coffee is a necessity. Um, I think people feel like online gaming is a necessity. Streaming. I think people think electric light is a necessity. I'm starting to rethink all this stuff. Refrigeration. I think the idea of a world without refrigeration, I th people fend off ideas like that. They're not even... You can always find weirdos out there. I mean, obviously. There, you could, there's a whole hippie culture. You can read hippie cookbooks and go on Reddit and meet all these weirdos out there. But it's so... It's such a slim, slim little slice of the society that's willing to kind of... That's willing to just to be that open. And so, yeah, it's... It, I'm... All, I'm not sure that there's anything I can do to change that. Um, maybe the current global pandemic will change that. You know, maybe here's, look, I bet there are going to be a lot of people who learn how to wash their clothes by hand in their bathtubs and hang them up to dry. Most of those people will go right back to using a laundromat. Um, I, we have a washer and dryer in our house, so we're, we're not in that boat. Although I do want to, I do want to... I would like to use the dryer less. God, I mean, you can just put things on a line. It is more work. All these things, I guess, are more work. But what the hell? Are our I mean, why are our lives so busy anyway? Why, why do you have so little work that you... <laughs> you know? I mean, I sound like a... I sound like... Like a... I don't... I, you know, what, look, I guess I end up sounding like a... Like a, like an unreasonable hippie. Or I end up sounding like a kook. You know? And here's the other thing. I know that there are kooks out there. 
I'm not a kook. I just read a lot. <laughs> but there are people out there who, I mean, there are kooks out there who read a lot. Um, there are like, this is what I'm saying about fending people off, fending things off, ideas off, whatever the case may be. If someone is screaming about, okay, well, here's one that, I, <laughs> that I'm going to say. If someone, if someone is uh, posting like anti-vax stuff on Facebook or maybe, I mean, honestly, if someone's posting a lot of astrology stuff on Facebook, yeah, I'm probably, it's, I'm going to probably just get this signal that like, that's not my kind of person and move on. And a lot of my friends actually, look, a lot of, a lot of people in the poetry world are into astrology and it's a whole conversation. I know you have subtle opinions about astrology, but astrology seems like a, to me, like a way to extract money from hopeful people hopeful unsavvy people anyhow i know it's therapeutic but it's not my thing um but the anti-vaxxer i think we, i think you and i can both agree that anti-vaxxers are not our kind of people and the thing to do is usually not even engage them in an argument because it's exhausting and pointless you just keep your distance and so it makes sense to me that someone hears someone talking about eating insects and it's just like fuck that like like <laughs> and here's a here's a really real thing that i've just become i've kind of just gradually become aware of recently which is that if you grow up poor um growing up poor is traumatic um i, I didn't grow up poor really I, I i was a real middle class i grew up in a pretty working class town but um yeah, that definitely was not me, but um, but if you really if you really do grow up wanting, you know, really wanting, maybe you know, food insecure, then anything associated with that you that you associate with poorness becomes so so um, repulsive to you. You know, you you realign. You can realign your your uh, whatever your everyday algorithms to just keep your distance because that stuff becomes a reminder of of the trauma of growing up and and not having as much as your friends you know um this is something i've heard described by <laughs> um my wife and a podcast host and um and so now i guess i have a pattern and well, look and people this is just something i've picked up on reading between the lines and people's Twitter posts and so on. It's, I think people just are so, there is just such an incredibly strong stigma in our culture to anything associated with uh, misfortune. You know, it's, it's like to be unfit or to be behind the pack is so shameful to people, even just to be in the middle of the pack. It's so shameful to people that they just, they push away, push away anything that, uh, that that resembles that, and so there's a lot of good cultural reasons for that. And and also, in a world with serious structural oppression, you can't, I I can't blame people for wanting something, you know. I can't blame. I'm thinking of someone who has come up poor, and now I'm saying, and and maybe they've made some progress, you know, made it to the middle class, and now I'm saying, actually, to save the planet, we have to go back to doing things the way poor people do them. And that is literally what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't want to get that twisted because I am saying we need to meet the third world in the middle. Um, 
And if you are into environmental stuff, you probably have a really snarky, you know, you have a snarky response. You say, um, North America, you know, using indigenous, uh, farming techniques, indigenous, you know, hunting techniques, North, North America could only support 700,000 people. And, and you know, we have hundreds of millions of people. And then that is just the end of the argument because there's one academic paper somewhere that said, <laughs> and look, would 700,000 people be more in balance, more sustainable on North America? Uh, yes, but that's not the situation. So what are we going to do next? We're not going to kill hundreds of millions of people, obviously. Um, that's not even, you know, on the table. And we're not going to all raise to the rise to the standard of living of Western people. Um, you know, we're not all going to be able to fly to Boca every year. I don't know who's flying to Boca. God, why was Boca flying to Cabo? We're not all flying to Cabo. You know, one way to the, okay, yeah, one response to world poverty would be, well, we just need to raise everybody's standard of living and keep raising it until they're equal to Americans. And so then, look, this is going to be good for the world because they'll get to travel around and have all these luxuries. And then it'll be good for the economy in Cabo because their market will be open to all of, <laughs> all of uh, the you know, current third world countries. It's going to be a boondoggle. It's going to be an economic boondoggle for everybody if we just raise the standard of living of everyone on the planet. It's so fucking stupid. There's not, it just doesn't work. It, if we, <laughs> it, the math just does not work. And so now I'm thinking, now I'm thinking, if you, I'm th just think from the perspective of somebody who is not in the United States or not in Western Europe and doesn't have access to all that stuff, you would, you would become embittered. I mean, over decades and generations and nothing changes. And this, this promise of maybe you've been sold the promise of raising standard, rising standard of living and it doesn't work out. You would be, that doesn't seem sustainable to me. <laughs> Um, it seems like a, it seems like a trick. It seems like a shell game and it is. And I think it is. Um, I think we've been tricked into these ideas of endless growth. And one of the, one of those big insidious tricks is just by making people feel bad for, for hanging out their clothes on a, on a clothesline instead of using a dryer. You know, you hang your clothes on a clothesline and it's just like the, the poverty, the poverty of it. It was, you know, if you let your neighbors see you, they're going to think you're a poor person, which is, you know, which is going to have negative repercussions or whatever, or you think it's going to, or if they see you raising fly larvae in your basement and then serving it to your kids, they're going to want to call CPS on you. It's, there's just this. Yeah, I don't know. I um, Not that I've figured it all out either. I'm just like, I'm just getting frustrated with the lack of imagination among some people. The lack of an imagination that, that the world could be, that the world could... I don't, I mean, people just think it's going to keep going on the way it has, you know, people, people, my parents age, 
I think I had a, I don't remember the exact exchange, but there was a conversation with my mom about the pandemic a few days ago. And she said something pretty optimistic about how, like, I hope we get back to life within a month or whatever. Um, something like that. And she just like, she realized she had no reason. Really, it was just optimism. It was just that how could the world not, like, how could this not just pass quickly and everything keeps going as it always has, you know, she's in her sixties. There have been negative things that happened in her life, but it's like, there have been certain constants. There's been, um, other than the, I guess the energy crisis was a disruption in the seventies, but like the supply chains have really just, have really kept running. You know, they've really, despite all the negative things in the world, uh, American consumer culture has been, has been not significantly interrupted and has just gotten, yeah, bigger and more voracious, more wasteful and more entitled. I think we really feel entitled to, to all this stuff being manufactured in Asia with other people's sweat and other people's resources. And what is holding it together is it's a system of these promises. It's this system of these, I mean, yes, money is a promise, but, but yes, what do we, I mean, what do we even have then as Americans? We're the ones who, we're the, we have the big financial system. We have the, we have the promises. I don't know. And then we have the people who are, who are so, are so, um, reliably manipulated into just buying more and more shit in competition with each other. And so it's dispiriting. I don't know. And I participate in all this stuff too. You know, this is the culture I came up in. I'm just trying to, I'm just, <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like the scales are falling, you know, and I graduated college in 2008 right into the financial crisis. So I'm, I guess I feel like I'm a, sitting on the outside a little bit. I've been on the sidelines of the economy in a way. I've never worked in an office, never had, um, I had health insurance from my employer for a time when I was working at, when I was at university of Texas at Austin, but, um, but never, that wasn't a full-time job though. That was a 20 hour a week position as a grad student. And so, no, I'm a little bit, I'm, a, I'm not sold on the promises of, of that thing, that American dream. That said, I'm living the American dream in my, in a house filled with technology. <laughs> so it's like, um, but within, but I'd like to think, but my house is a hippie, you know, I live in a house full of a lot, a lot of used technology. I'm a real scavenger and, uh, and, a, and used electronics buyer. I'm a big, I'm a really big fan of now. Okay. Maybe all electronics manufacturing is evil, but the, here's what I'm, maybe here's what I'm saying is you, we can edge into this. We can try to, we can ease into this a little bit. Um, maybe, I don't know. I'm, what, what am I saying? Maybe I'm trying to make it seem like a big accomplishment that I bought a used mixer from somebody on Craigslist, but, but, um, well, okay. Putting aside environmental concerns, here's a practical tip. Right now, all the technology made 10 years ago is pretty amazing. I mean, 
there are like little features. There's things that have been added. Like there's like, um, like the mixer that I'm currently using doesn't have a, an audio card built into it. So it's the previous generate, you know, so it's all digital, all, uh, you know, it's got lots of features and it's really nice and it sounds good. It sounds extremely clean. I think, uh, any, uh, any, uh, <laughs> issues with this recording are solely my technique and not the mixer, but the, uh, it doesn't have these few little most recent features. And so it can't fit into anybody's kit. If they're like a, you know, a, if they're coming up or if they want to use the latest software, um, however, it works super well. You, I guess the difference is that you just need more knowledge. You know, you you have to be a little bit more of an expert to use old tools. Um, but that's the, anyhow, that's, that's the philosophy I've been, I've been trying to follow recently, which also suits me because I just get bored with technology. I, I haven't used an iPhone in a couple of years now. Um, but I, I was, it's more satisfying to me to use I'm not going to go into my whole system, but my, yeah, I use a, a beater Android. Um, normally not connect, you know, I just use beater Android on Wi-Fi, and things are slower. Um, and it's a little bit less, you know, it's not, it's not as luxurious. It's not as it's, I'm just take, <laughs> but it, but it works just fine. And it was so cheap. Or, you know, it was free. Somebody, I asked somebody for this phone and they, they gave it to me. Um, and it's such a satisfying challenge, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I would feel differently in an emergency if my phone were loading slowly, but I'm, I'm willing to, I'm willing to deal with that a little bit. Maybe, oh, here's an, <laughs> maybe here's another way I'm, I'm, I'm perfectly positioned to, to, to try to tell people to slow things down a little bit, which is that I, I remember the early internet, you know, I, I think that the, I've gotten faster and faster internet connections whenever possible for, you know, for the last two decades now. And, and the faster internet is better, but it was fine before. <laughs> I mean, it worked. It was, I think, I think we could freeze our capacity on the internet and and deal with slower and slower speeds and move away from streaming and save a huge amount of electricity but this is not this is so far outside of the Overton window to say that we should slow down technology to say that we should slow down the pace of development research you know new products and because really because that's contrary to what our economy is built on which is, well, endless new variety, in infinite novelty forever. Um, and there's, so it's, I, I don't know. I feel pretty helpless in this situation. All I can do is, all you can do is go out there and preach, but then people think you're a kook and they dismiss you. And so I don't know, I don't know how to, how to get into, you know, I don't know how to persuade people. Yeah, it's possible that this podcast is a bad use of my time. Maybe I should have been writing a letter to the editor.
But if you if you say internet speeds should be slower, who, what editor would publish that? It's just outrageous. So I don't know. I don't know. And I'm interested in hearing why I'm wrong also. I'll just throw that out there. You can always get me on Twitter at, at Steve McLaugh, which is my name, minus the last three letters. Um, I am always... Now, I've, I've considered a lot of counter-arguments to my argument. I mean, I try to, I'm, I'm trying to be thoughtful about this. I've considered a lot of these counter-arguments, and I just don't think they quite hold up. And so maybe in my ultimate... Look, I, the, the problem with a lot of political visions is that people, people spend a lot of time thinking about the endpoint and then arguing, arguing over whether the endpoint would be desirable, um, arguing over whether it would be perfect, you know, whether, whether it goes far enough. But that's not really the way things proceed exactly. It's much more about pushing, finding weaknesses in, in the system and pushing things in that direction. I think finding your opportunities. Um, and so this does seem like the, a good opportunity. People, a lot of people learning these, a little bit of household frugality, a little bit of, uh, how to cook beans, some skills they haven't had before. So that's a very minor silver lining and a, a huge tragedy. People maybe are at least a little more aware of how much they're driving, how much they're taking public transit in their you know, normal everyday life. And so maybe, you know, maybe some of these habits will stick, uh, like happened in the, uh, the seventies energy crisis, certain habits stuck with certain people. My dad, growing up, my dad would always, um, instead of running the, instead of running the water while he shaved, he would fill the sink with water and then you know, dip his razor into the water and swish it around to get the hair off of it. And that was something he picked up during the energy crisis, uh, which I, which I quite like, which by the way, I have not I don't do that right now. I have a beard, but, but I never, when I was shaving, I would just typically run the faucet. I just, it was just so, such a fuss, such a, yeah, but I didn't live through the energy crisis. Yeah. So maybe I just don't know. I, there are little opportunities here and there. Maybe, maybe people are coming around. Um, but, but yeah, my, look, my, my, it doesn't help that my ultimate vision, you know, I would just rather, ideally, I, you know, just, I don't know what my, my positive vision is, is what I'm saying precisely. It, it could be people sitting around a fire instead of watching Netflix. Um, and then we're going to have to do some math on what happens if everyone on earth is uh, burning firewood. Um, although I, I do there's one, um, there's one subtle thing about, about the source of fuel that, that most people overlook though, which is <laughs> you can, okay. So someone making an argument against heating your home with firewood or whatever, what have you would, would point to the emissions from that firewood and then compare it to, um, natural gas or something like that. They would make some kind of direct comparison and they would say, if you, to get this level of energy from firewood, you'd have to to get the same amount of energy as you do from natural gas, you'd have to burn X amount of firewood and that would emit X, you know, carbon into the atmosphere and particulate matter. And that would be a, a big problem. But if people are using firewood instead of natural gas, they will use much less of it. They will use much, much, much less of it and, and will conserve it because 
because the labor is, because the work is really right in front of them because they have to do all that um, chopping and splitting and, you know, most likely uh, tending to the fire and they can see how much firewood they have left. They can see how much firewood they've used in a, in a single night. Um, there are like, I think that, <laughs> I think that some of these, I think that there are hidden efficiencies <laughs> in, in using inefficient techniques because you end up, because you end up using less of the, of the resource. Um, that's probably, you could probably find that out there in some economics journal somewhere. I wonder if you know, if you know about it, let me know. Um, well, I guess the opposite is that paradox where if something is cheaper, people will consume much more of it. So I guess it's just the inverse of that. Okay. But yeah, no, no, I feel like, uh, I feel like an outsider for sure. I feel like an outsider. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I've, I guess as usual, I've reached, uh, a point where I'm more confused and dispirited than, than I was at the outset of the show. And, uh, and now I'm just going to have to live with that. Just going to have to sit with that. But I do appreciate, appreciate you being with me. I'm going to have to go downstairs and check on my daughter. But, uh, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. My name is Steve McLaughlin. You've been listening to the Steve McLaughlin Radio Hour, and uh, I'll talk to you next time. Later.